0: Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast. My name is Ricky Allpike. Back in July 2022, we spoke to writer and campaigner Louise Perry. Perry's controversial book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, came out in that year, and we took a deep dive on all the ideas and topics covered in her book.
1: I think that one of the reasons that the liberal feminist idea of that the differences between the sexes are trivial. I think one of the reasons that that has become as dominant as it has among some people, among the laptop class, right, among people who work in the knowledge sector, is because our modern lives and modern technology almost give the illusion that it could be true. Because it used to be, for instance, that male physical strength was hugely important from an economic perspective. If you're you're working in agriculture or heavy industry or whatever, the fact that men are are so much bigger and stronger than women is both extremely obvious and extremely important. That's much less true in a modern world, which is based on service and knowledge work.
2: Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro, and with me is the Cishet privileged Ricky Orpike. How are you, Ricky? I'm good, and that's all true. (laughs) (laughs) It's all true. You can't deny it. I can't deny reality. Just tell me you're not cis or het. (laughs) Try, and I'll say I I just, I just ooze those things. They just come out of my pores. You do? But that's why we are talking to Louise Perry today. She's written a a provocative uh, new book, which I can't wait to, to discuss. Let's do it.
0: Louise Perry is a writer and campaigner based in London. She is a columnist at the New Statesman and a features writer for the Daily Mail. Louise is the press officer for the campaign group We Can't Consent to This, which documents cases in which UK women have been killed and defendants have claimed in court that they died as a result of rough sex. Louise is here to discuss her debut book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a new guide to sex in the 21st century, which is out now. Louise, welcome to The New Flesh.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: So Louise, why is WAP considered some kind of feminist masterpiece? Do women really want a certified freak all seven days of the week, every day? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, okay. So WAP, let, yeah, let's jump in at the deep end. The thing that really struck me about WAP when it came out, right, and it was and it was hailed as this, um, you know, amazing example of women taking taking ownership of their sexuality, yada, 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 is two things. One is the fact that the, the video... The whole aesthetic is completely borrowed from porn, right? Like that was that was what was so striking about it. That this was like almost directly transposed from from kind of pornhub aesthetics onto like you know lightly censored, and on, on, onto uh, onto music TV. And two is the fact that if you actually read the lyrics or listen carefully to the lyrics, it's not clear at all that the women singing are actually doing any of this stuff. For their own sexual gratification, they talk really explicitly about the fact that it's actually all about making money. It's things like getting a record deal, you know, having your tuition paid for, having a guy buy you a car, all this kind of stuff. It's actually very, very uh, direct exchange of sex for money and other goods, which I don't think sounds at all like women taking ownership of their sexuality. It sounds like it sounds like the sex industry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, early in the book, you make a revolutionary claim, and that is, uh, everybody clutch their pearls, that men and women share uh, psychological and and physiological differences. This contradicts uh, a couple of popular notions we've heard that men and women are the same, and that the idea of of being a woman is as simple as saying you are one. Uh, Have you had any pushback on this? I've had pushback from
1: every possible angle you can imagine. (laughs) Probably like it's only been out for like a month Um, and not, it's not even out in America yet. Um, So I'd say that like 80% of responses have been really positive. And actually the most common response has been something along the lines of thank you so much for saying this. I've been thinking this all this time and, you know, What a relief to actually see someone write it down. So, I I, like the expected pushback from liberal feminists has been, you know, much, pretty much what I would have expected because, like, the book is largely a critique of liberal feminism. Um, That is a sort of feminism that sees um, one, freedom as the ultimate goal, and two, like, on the basis of that, thinks that women being more like men in every possible way is a good thing, you know, that if only women can, can have access to all the, all the the masculine spheres, then they will be free, um, which is a claim that I fundamentally disagree with. I've also had pushback from radical feminists because even though radical feminists agree with me on a lot of, of points on, you know, prostitution, porn or whatever, I also have a chapter at the end of the book where I say that marriage is a good thing.
2: Spoilers. Um,
1: yeah, which has gone down with my bit <laughs> in some quarters. Um, and then I annoy Christian conservatives because I'm pro-choice. So,
2: Well, uh, but would you say that, just a quick follow-up, but would you say that, that liberal feminism is, I think it's a bit of an understatement, I, it's, it's sort of the only game in town. Really, like that, 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 the other wings that you that you just mentioned, or the other sects, are pale in comparison to this. This, the what is it, I think a, a very dominant group. So, wouldn't the, uh, most of it be coming from from that?
1: Yeah, liberal feminists are definitely the most the most dominant group by far, and they wouldn't normally describe themselves as liberal feminists. They'd normally describe themselves as um, intersectional feminists nowadays. But the reason that I choose the word liberal was because I think. It's important to remember that liberal feminism is is just a feminist iteration of liberalism, which is the, the great ideology of our times, so much so that we almost can't see it for what it is, because it's what Western culture is completely immersed in. Um, and I'm not like an anti-liberal. It's just that I think that there are there are there are problems within the ideology, and particularly the idea of freedom trumping all other virtues. Is I think a mistake. I think freedom has to be balanced against the other virtues, which is kind of what I'm trying to correct in the book.
2: And just on those those, those specific points of six differences, and uh, I mean, has this issue particular issue because you do address it at the beginning uh, of your book. Has this issue progressed at all in the last few years? Because sex differences discussing sex differences of any sort or any acknowledgement of biological realities uh up until uh happened in in recent past absolute no-go zones you go into the case of james damore uh mm-hmm. putting forward uncontroversial ideas about about uh you know, uh, uh, differences between, between the sexes and, and their choices. Uh, you know, another case would be uh, our, one of our most famous uh, feminists, uh, Germaine Greer, uh, said, you know, um, it was critiquing uh, trans issues a few years ago, completely cancelled, uh, you know, uh, and, and the rest of it. So have you seen any, any uh, change since, the you know, for, since Damore or, or anything like that?
1: Um, no, I think it's probably got worse.
2: <laughs> <laughs> unexpected i thought you're gonna say oh yeah it's getting a little bit
1: better and you're like no it's going well, well i don't know it depends on where you're talking about so like so so i don't really talk about trans politics in the book at all i think i mentioned it maybe once um because i reasoned that it's probably better to be controversial about one thing at a time but that um, kind of
2: like not mentioning a meteor that's like coming <laughs> towards the earth. You're like, yeah. anyway, I'm going to the shops later.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's kind of implicit through the whole thing, isn't it? I mean, in the it sense is. that I just thought, you know, like Kathleen Stock, who wrote my forward, wrote this fabulous book, Material Girls, which is all about the, the, the trans movement. Um, there have been other fabulous books written, like Helen Joyce's book, Trans, and so on. Um, and I, I, I mean, I kind of just take all of that as read in a way in the book you know I, my second chapter is called men and women are different and i just don't even entertain the idea that you can self id your sex i just i just think that like i'm mm-hmm. it would take it would take so many hundreds of pages to fully address i just think no i'm not doing it yep. i'm just going to i'm well, just going to kind that's of skip that's the sequel that's there. There. oh no <laughs> <laughs> um, well you, yeah. I've you
2: Uh, You've mentioned some of the chapter headings Which are uh, Mm. are Very provocative, just a couple Uh, Sex must be taken seriously Men and women are different, which we've Sort of touched on, some Mm. desires are bad Loveless sex is not Empowering, goes on and on, I won't ruin it for everyone But, uh, you know, with that Little teaser, what inspired you To write the book, because you know, just based on, on what I've read out, it can't have been an interest in scoring a job at The Guardian or the BBC.
1: <laughs> yeah, you mentioned at the top, I worked for the Daily, for the Daily Mail as of this week. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think they are provocative. Well, they so, I mean, they sort of are simultaneously provocative and obvious, which was, which was kind of what I was going for, because actually some people have read the book and have been like, duh, none of this is even surprising, let alone groundbreaking Um, and then other people completely lose their minds which was kind of the idea that you stating these what should be obvious facts the fact that they're not necessarily obvious was exactly what I was trying to highlight like I mean the so my chapter titles got shared on by the publisher a few months before publication and then got a screenshot of the contents page got shared on twitter and I had like several days twitter storm just in response to things like men and women are different or most hilariously one of my chapters is called people are not products which is about sex industry and that you know the fury from people allegedly on the left at the idea that human beings are not products to be bought and sold which you would think would be a very very fundamental observation (laughs) from anyone with like a critique of capitalism so yeah they've kind of done what they were supposed to do i suppose those those titles no, I don't think that there's anything I honestly feel like writing the book was low hanging fruit. Because there's just there's been such a collective effort at denial in some quarters on these points. And sort of anyone paying attention should have noticed that the whole the whole ideology doesn't really fit together, that there's a real incoherence. And I I felt that actually then, you know, I'm kind of treading a third way. So the the, the, the The typical conflict, you mentioned Jermaine Greer. I mean, Jermaine Greer is a kind of her own thing. She always has been. But the typical conflict in feminism is between the dominant liberal feminism, which is trans inclusive, which is very much about kind of minimizing the differences between men and women um, and promoting choice and freedom as the ultimate goals. And then radical feminism, which is derived from Marxism, which does, is not trans-inclusive in the sense that it doesn't think that you can kind of self-identify into, into whichever sex you choose and um, tends to view kind of men as an oppressor class and women as an oppressed class and therefore understands like prostitution for instance as being within that oppressor framework and uh, one of the things that radical feminists are very set against traditionally is the idea of psychological differences between the sexes they really don't like evolutionary psychology there the the radical feminist idea is that all psychological differences and behavioral differences between men and women are a result of socialization, particularly socialization in childhood, and that if only you could sort of have gender neutral socialization from the get-go, you wouldn't have, for instance, men making up the vast majority of sexual offenders, um, you wouldn't have women primarily doing um, childcare rather than rather than fathers, stuff like that, you'd end up with a completely gender neutral world and I don't think that's true I mean whether or not we w- w- would like it to be true I just don't think of it, that it is I think that the evidence hugely overwhelming evidence suggests that actually there's some really important innate differences between men and women which are which are on average you know there are lots of people who are anomalous and don't necessarily fit into masculine and feminine stereotypes and actually the stereotypes are you know quite extreme but on average things like men are more aggressive than women on average women are more interested in looking after babies on average, like that stuff is true. And James taymor Day, James was was right that he, you know, lost his job at Google as a consequence of saying it. And so in, in that sense, I'm kind of, I i i take those, I take those differences as a given from the beginning of the book. And then sort of the question I'm asking throughout is then, okay, what next? If we accept that, that men and women have these fundamental psychological and physical differences, how do we manage a sexual culture mm. and in that sense i'm i'm not really fitting into any of the boxes
0: yeah well just a follow-up to that if some of these things you outlined you, you say are so obvious a are, are low-hanging fruit how, if they're so obvious how, how did we get to this this place we're in now where where, where something as obvious as this that, that we can see with our own eyes and that most of us know to be true is is so controversial
1: mm. i mean i guess it's controversial in particular in like Uh, you know, in certain spheres, so in academia, in the media, in kind of uh, elite spaces. It's people who work in, like, people who don't go to university are much more likely to think that this is obvious than people who do. There seems to be that the university system, like, unlearns things that should be obvious. Um, And, yeah, it's a really interesting question as to why. I mean, I think that one of the reasons that, the liberal feminist idea of um, that the differences between the sexes are trivial, I think one of the reasons that that has become as dominant as it has among some people, among the laptop class, right, among people who, who work in the knowledge sector, is because our modern lives and modern technology almost give the illusion that it could be true. Because it used to be, for instance, that male physical strength was hugely important from an economic perspective. If you're, you know, if you're working in agriculture or heavy industry or whatever, the fact that men are so much bigger and stronger than women is both extremely obvious and extremely important. That's much less true in a modern world, which is based on service and knowledge work. So there's, you know, so there's that. There's these kind of big economic changes which are flattening some of the differences between the sexes, or at least flattening the appearance of the differences. Um, The pill, obviously, which is kind of the whole starting point of my book, like, you know, the pill is this great technology shock in the mid-20th century, which suddenly makes it possible for women to suspend their fertility, um, reliably suspend their fertility in a way that they never could before. So that, again, gives that kind of superficial illusion of sameness in the sense that women can delay childbearing or not have children at all and therefore, you know, basically do the same jobs as men. Yeah, you know, if you're in an office where no one's doing any kind of physical work, where you're able to delay childbearing, and where you're um you're generally operating in a very gender neutral space. It used to be people used to have a lot more kind of homosocial lives in that they would overwhelmingly socialise only with either relatives the opposite sex, but otherwise only with members of their own sex and that's much less true now which is partly to do with the workplace changing as it has you know you can operate in that kind of space and it can appear that actually men and women are basically interchangeable and that the differences are are really trivial which is how you end up with these really crazy ideas for instance that like you should no longer have men and women's categories in sport if you don't if you don't play sports and if you (laughs) you know um then that might seem Kind of obvious, and it is incredible to me how highly educated people can think. I mean, it's because they're highly educated. <laughs> they think this perversely, but it it should be so obvious that I mentioned in the book the fact that teenage boys can typically beat elite professional women adult women at sports, particularly anything based on strength and anything based on upper body strength in particular, because the the, the differences are that massive, and. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the the modern world could almost make you think that that wasn't true. So I'm guessing that that must be a factor in why you see people, you know, denying the differences between men and women. And, and I think also just really wanting it to be true. Because if the whole feminist project is about flattening gender differences and crucially making it so that women can be as much like men as possible, you know, be do everything a man can do in the workplace, um, make child rearing completely gender neutral all of this kind of stuff like the the fact of biological differences is extremely inconvenient because it means that there's this kind of bedrock that you get down to eventually where you try your very best to ameliorate the differences and you just cannot kind of you cannot get beyond some of these really ingrained ones and so i suppose a desire to deny them is very attractive
2: absolutely well you've You touched on the sexual revolution. now, talk us through how the sexual revolution has been bad for women because this this in in uh, popular thoughts is seen it's totally trumpeted as being a great thing, universally great and fun thing, a sexy time for all. <laughs> so what 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 went wrong?
1: <laughs> so yeah, these, so, yeah, you're completely right. The popular narrative says that the sexual revolution was all about freeing women, really. Um, that we'd previously been repressed by patriarchal religious systems and so on, and that the sexual revolution kind of encouraged everyone to discard these old-fashioned restrictive ideas and that this has been to women's benefit. I mean, it clearly is the case that women now, it's more socially acceptable to be kind of sexually open, adventurous, et cetera. If anything, it's kind of compulsory in a funny kind of way. Um, I mean, women tread a very difficult line. Because on the one hand, there's definitely this encouragement. To be a to certified be. freak. Exactly. I was about to, I was about to end a yeah. Okay, right. there's, there's definitely that, that, like, that encouragement. But there's also actually, like, the sexual double standard has not gone away. So it's still the case that women are penalised for promiscuity in a way that men aren't on a social level. Sometimes that's not always spoken about. I mean, I write in the book about some quite clever surveys that have been done with both men and women to kind of gauge their um, subconscious responses to male and female promiscuity. And women are still judged pretty hard. It's just not necessarily, you know, open. So it's quite a difficult tightrope, actually, that girls have to, that young women in particular, have to tread between, like, being apparently sexually adventurous, but not too much. It's quite difficult, whereas historically, uh, yeah, you know, female chastity was extremely important and women were were, were shamed and socially ostracised for doing anything else. So, yeah, it's true that that's no longer the case, which is, I, I suppose, a good thing. or well, it is a good thing in lots of cases. The problem, I think, is that the one of the really important psychological differences between men and women is um, in a trait that psychologists call sociosexuality. So that's the it's not quite the same thing as sex drive. Common misconception: What it is is it's um, the desire to have like a wide variety of partners. So people who are high in sociosexuality struggle to be monogamous. Um, in, you know, are really driven towards having casual sex, whereas people low in it want to know their partner for longer before they have sex and prefer monogamy, etc. And obviously, you know, you have many women across the whole spectrum, but the differences on average between men and women are pretty massive. And it means that at the population level, um, there's what I call the sociosexuality gap, which is that men want to be having a lot more casual sex than women and women don't really want to. And so like like, someone has to win out in a way. And I think what's happened post-sexual revolution is that the masculine standard has become the aspirational one for women. And women are in, are encouraged by the culture and by incentive structures within the dating market to kind of meet that masculine standard and to have more casual sex than they really want to, to have sex sooner in relationships than they really want to. You know, most women will say quite bluntly, if you ask them in surveys, that what they'd like is committed monogamy, but they don't necessarily feel like they can demand that. and. You know, it is really interesting looking at, for instance, the differences in in sexual cultures between, excuse me, university campuses, which are quite a good arena for looking at this, because you've got a lot of young people with not very much to do. And they're like a fairly closed sort of community. And you see that on campuses where you have uh, more women than men, so men are the rarer sex, the rarer sex are able to set the terms more easily, and so you end up with more hookup culture. Whereas on campuses where you've got more men than women, the women are the rar- rarer sex, you end up with more monogamy, which is, I think, very good evidence of the fact that these average differences between the sexes are quite profound and they do have an effect in the real world. And I think that what has often been sort of dressed up as um female empowerment, sexual liberation, blah, 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 has actually been about women not only being given the freedom to have sex like men but actually being put under quite intense pressure sometimes to have sex like men and i think that to present that as being a good a feminist thing (laughs) is completely wrong partly because women are having sex they don't necessarily really want to be having but also because women suffer the consequences of sex in a way that men don't because women are the ones who get pregnant and so they have to you know deal (laughs) deal with the consequences of an unwanted pregnancy deal with all the side effects of of hormonal birth control which can be really really unpleasant um and also suffer like the physical risks as well the fact that women are so much Smaller and weaker than men means that going home with a stranger is always going to be much more dangerous for the woman than the man.
2: Um, I can't get sorry, but but you know, I can't get women. I know, I know that I only deal in anecdotes, of, so I, I I have no hard data for you, but all the women that I survey personally, I cannot get them to admit something that I can see in their eyes. I say, isn't it true that women aren't into all this stuff that they that they want? You know that they what they really want, and it's going to sound terrible. But they really want is a is a, is, a, is a long-term thing and they don't want this casual stuff. They don't like it. You don't like it. And then they go, they sort of, I can see this look in their eye, like someone's recording them or something. Like they're, like they're going, <laughs> oh, oh, like they're, they're, they're not allowed to say it. Even the women I know really well, uh, I, I, I feel this hesitance. Is this, am I, am I reading too much into this? No, no, it totally
1: exists. The main, I mentioned at the top of the show about how I got criticism from every angle. The main criticism from liberal feminists and I guess kind of libertarians in general is that I'm you know treating women as victims patronizing women actually they love it you know you can go out onto the street and find as many women as you like he'll tell you that they actually love hookup culture and they are extremely sexually adventurous authentically etc cetera, etc cetera. I mean clearly there are outliers the outliers do exist um and this is something that people like otherwise very clever people can be weirdly bad at recognizing you know if I say that say the people of Holland tend to be taller than the people of Italy and people say but I know a Dutchman who's really short like that should be obviously stupid but in in um in talking about sociosexuality people like struggle to compute um so there's that but also I think that I think honestly that women don't feel like they have they that this is all dressed up as being about freedom and about choice and whatever. But if you're in a sexual culture where the hookup culture is the norm and where the masculine style of sexuality is aspirational and you say, you know, so one of the pieces of advice I have in the book, for instance, is that it's better to delay having sex with someone for a few months into a relationship uh, for a few reasons, partly so that you can, um, because the hormones of having sex addle your brain a bit so you can like assess your partner with clearer eyes partly so that, as well, you know that he's not just in it for the sex, that he's actually interested in you. And I say this to women and they're like, what are you, that's impossible. (laughs) Like, no man is going to hang around for three months, let's say, before having sex. And then they say simultaneously, oh, but I love casual sex, I'm choosing it, etc. Like, come on, you're not choosing it if the choice is basically either having zero relationships or having to put out on the first or second day because the the problem is that the current culture basically requires you to go like like, through hookup culture to get to a long-term relationship that you almost have to run the gauntlet. And I mean, it's actually a fairly poor strategy, unfortunately, because often one of the ways in which male and female sexuality differs is that um, men, so women look for the same qualities in a man, whether or not they're intending to have a short or a long-term relationship with him you know all the various desirable traits that we know you know men don't necessarily do that with women men have a men have a very high bar for the women that they might be interested in marrying but they have quite a low bar for the women that they just want to hook up with and they are quite happy to have sex often with women that they actually don't really have any liking for um and that's a different that's a very painful difference (laughs) between many people's sexuality that women excuse me aren't necessarily aware of so you know, all of which is to say that it's quite easy to end up in a sexual relationship with a man and to get potentially really attached to a man who actually doesn't really care about you at all, the kind of friends with benefits arrangement. And because we've got this, like, collective effort at denying these differences, and because women are very agreeable often and tend to not want to kind of voice their complaints when they end up in these situationships, you end up with this really painful like gap in understanding of what's going on where the the the, the male half of the friends with benefits arrangement thinks that this is just like everyone's here for fun no problem mm. and the female half doesn't feel like that at all she's actually feeling really wounded and would much prefer to have a proper relationship um there was a, a little study that was done in a university that i quote in the book where a women who were in these situationships were asked how they felt about it and a hundred percent of them said that they didn't like it and I, I'm like, and I guess if you are kind of stuck in that rut where you don't really feel like you do actually have the power to be more demanding, like the, the cope of saying that you actually really like it and you're actually really sexually empowered is quite attractive. It's much nicer to say that and to believe that than to recognise what's actually going on. Um, yeah, I get criticised for saying this, but I think it's true.
0: Well, <laughs> let's dive a little bit deeper into hookup hook culture Now, I I haven't approached a strange woman in a bar for a while now, but I feel... Before (laughs) smartphones. That's right, yeah. (laughs) But I feel that if I did in 2022, the woman I approached would be awkward at best and afraid for her life at worst. I feel like dating apps have destroyed casual male-to-female interaction. How do dating apps fit into the sexual revolution? Uh, Is this progress?
1: I mean, I'm not sure if the approach in a bar was all that great either. To be honest,
0: true,
2: I,
1: I, <laughs> it's true, it started a death with Tinder, but um, uh, I, I think it's much better if you can to meet people through through like mutual friends and acquaintances because then you have a means of vetting and access to their reputation and stuff. But yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's kind of the advantage of dating apps, and I have lots of friends who use them, even though they don't necessarily like them, because um, it gives you access to a really large pool of people. Although um, you know, that can sometimes be a downside as well in the sense that it gives they give you the illusion of like um infinite choice, which sometimes it's like when you go into Netflix because you want to watch something and you're just overwhelmed with things to watch. And like, oh my god, I'm just not gonna watch anything at all because <laughs> I can't I can't be bothered to choose. Or sometimes it's turning on TV and kind of being given what the terrestrial channels give you is actually
2: more satisfying that's how our parents all met they just they went like my mum seemed like she just went yeah yeah, i'll marry you and and then here i am so
1: an amazing proportion of people there's a graph somewhere i didn't include in the book but it's a really great graph of like how people met over time um last sort of 50 years and obviously dating apps go like this uh, meeting in a bar kind of goes up and down because the dating apps overtake it, but that didn't used to be the norm. Amazing number of people used to meet in church mm. and um, through family. Um, I mean, it's obviously less so, you know, in the days when women weren't in the workplace as often, less so. But workplace is a big one, you know. And dating apps are overtaking all of that, and and obviously the there is an advantage in the sense that you can you have a very well women have a very large number of options available to them. Very attractive men have a very large number of options available to them. The bottom 80% of men in terms of attractiveness often have zero options available to them.
2: Well, we've got but some, not not zero. Okay.
1: <laughs> but there are, you know, there's a, there's a goodish proportion of men who complain of having no matches um, on dating apps, which is kind of miserable for them. Um, there's an interesting thing that happens on dating apps where it tends to... You get this, like women all flocking towards the most attractive, whatever top quarter of men, whereas men just like are happy to match with pretty much anyone. Which does suggest that, um, like left to our own devices, we tend to, to we tend to drift back towards polygamy. Obviously, this isn't with an actual marriage system in place, but you you know if you've got these elite men who've got multiple women on the go at one time, they are basically living the kind of polygamous ideal which to be fair is our is does seem to be our natural state as a species like most i think about 80% of societies on the anthropological record have been polygamous and 20% have had a monogamous marriage system no one has almost no one has polyandrous system where you have women having multiple wife, um, women having multiple husbands this is one of these kind of uh, fantasies of like the matriarchal past like where, where I imagine societies where, where, where we were free of all of these kind of patriarchal norms, I, there are a handful of societies that are polyandrous and it doesn't tend to be because women are like in charge, it tends to be more like brothers marrying the same woman because of inheritance or you know whatever, it's not actually like feminist in any way. Um, Polygamy is a very very um kind of natural form of human mating system and I, I argue in the book and this is one of the reasons I made the argument for monogamous marriage in the last um, and most it, it spicy chapter is that polygamy has all sorts of bad results for women in particular and for a lot of men as well it suits the interests of high status men because they're able to take on as many wives as they like it doesn't suit the interests of the men who then can attract zero partners and it doesn't suit the interests of women either because they end up in households um, there's a lot more domestic violence in polygamous systems, there's a lot more child abuse in polygamous systems because you end up with households which are really very like, unstable, there's a lot of conflict. There's also a lot more crime in general in societies with polygamy because you end up with this portion of unmarried men who are um, really high on testosterone and resentment and don't have a lot to lose from their perspective, so will do kind of optionistic crime. Um, and societies are also less economically productive because um when elite men are prevented from spending money on taking on more wives they, they instead spend their money on investing in businesses and hiring employees and all this kind of stuff um which is good for the society as a whole so on the macro level monogamous marriage is a really good system you know it might it has its flaws it absolutely does everything has its flaws but the, sort of the point i'm making from starting from a, a realist perspective is that we don't just get to design our own utopian system because invariably when people do that they discover that actually it doesn't work. You know people have experimented with all kinds of like weird and wonderful relationship systems and systems of child-rearing, you know communal communal child-rearing systems, polyamory, you know whatever you like. They tend to be suit the interests of only a small number of weird people and also tend to be really unstable. Whereas the monogamous marriage system has is is both despite all its downsides is both stable and actually good for individuals and societies as a whole
2: well i we've actually got a couple of uh follow-ups there um so you you have cited marriage we might as well do marriage but now that we're here uh <laughs> as being one of the ways to combat the some negative trends that we've that we've been talking about um mm-hmm. so in a surprisingly rational review on the Guardian, uh, the reviewer does give you a waggle of the finger for exploring marriage. Uh, mm. Quote, and I and I have to do my Guardian voice. Sorry. Uh, mm. And I wish she hadn't detoured detoured into marriage. As a feminist who decries the matricidal impulses of her generation, I hope she won't mind me saying that life is long, that people fall in and out of love in spite of their best efforts, and that all the statistics in the world cannot make me believe that a child with really miserable parents would not ultimately be better off if they could only separate amicably. Uh, what do you make of this criticism?
1: It's 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 one that I've had I've heard quite a lot. I mean, I think that recognizing the existence of trade offs and the fact that everything has trade offs is, in a sense, a really really conservative idea, and it's one that a lot of progressives really struggle with. And the criticism that the style of criticism that I get quite often from progressives is along the lines of, "But what about this instance where?" you know, people are in a miserable marriage. But what about this instance where this, you know, rule doesn't work? What about all these exceptions? And I say, I agree with you. I agree that there are exceptions. And I agree that there are downsides to absolutely everything you can possibly imagine. But what I'm arguing is that we currently have terrible downsides to our current culture. And, you know, if we're trying to, what we're faced with is not a a, A question of choosing between a perfect system and an imperfect system. What we're choosing between is two different kinds of imperfect system with different levels of imperfection. And I think that it is clearly the case that people often get, you know, you. I mean, I I I do think that it's important that people are able to divorce if you have domestic violence, right? Like I I I really strongly feel that, and I think that the the criminal justice system should um should step in and take it really seriously. I mean campaigning on violence against women in the criminal justice system has been my the life, the, the work of my adult life. Um, but most people are not, most marriages don't end because of domestic violence. Most marriages end because people get bored of one another in various ways and behave and, and, and you know, have have all kinds of conflict which are inevitable in any human relationship. And the argument that I'm making basically is that both for individuals and for society and for children in particular, the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that in most of those cases, people would be better placed to stick with it. Well,
2: I and think the- this is if a I- sorry, sorry, Louis. I think that you've you've quite a, a striking thing that I got from your book, and you've 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 come to it uh, uh, well before I I I thought we were going to. But you've got these great ideas in the book, and I think that there are those. I don't want to label the group. Uh, uh, who is against it But you know Could be a, a group of feminists Or whoever Is on It could be the left It could be anyone I feel like As you say that They they refuse to accept Trade-offs Or a less than perfect situation As you say Which is what marriage is They would prefer That we restructure society To service a handful Of supposedly Polyamorous people Out there For example Or Or they would say Be happy to, to uh, Have OnlyFans to go around and say that OnlyFans is great and that it's the thing to do uh, because it works for a few well-off orc- academics in theory, and you know it, this is the the message I got. It, it's this this idea that that it's okay to strive for the good rather than the perfect. Uh, where I think that seems to be an essential difference between the project that you've embarked on and what you, what I get from uh, you know you could get from uh, some of the other feminist uh, books that that are that, uh, striving for that that constant purity test uh they're trying to solve this escher like impossible problem
1: yeah and the fact that i so i describe uh in the book the what i call the problem of normal distribution which is the fact that you have a lot of human traits are arranged on a bell curve and um if you impose some change on the whole system it's going to affect people differently depending on where they are along the bell curve it's going to move the threshold up and down you know um it's a real problem, and it's a problem that applies to pretty much any policy problem that you can imagine. Um, the example I give is marriage, you know, that there's always been, if we if we assume that the happiness of a marriage is roughly along a bell curve, you have super happy marriages, you have super unhappy, most people are somewhere in the middle, and it used to be that the threshold uh, above which you would get divorced was really, really high, um, meaning that there were people, you know, who were still in super unhappy marriages but kind of had to stay together who couldn't get access to divorce and then you have um, divorce reforms come along at the end of the 60s and the threshold just comes hurtling downwards because the problem is you can't very easily you know affect a system in a really precise way. It's not how human beings work, right? We we are all enmeshed with one another in all sorts of really complicated ways. I mean, who would have thought, for instance, that introducing the pill would raise the rate of single motherhood? And yet it has, spectacularly, because humans are really complicated. So, so you know, you end up with actually, as as what seems to have happened with divorce, is that it used to be considered something you only did in a really extreme scenario. And now it's something that people do much more readily, and it's, and it's moreover a culture of divorce in which um, marriages aren't really considered to be properly lasting affects all marriages. Like there's really interesting research, for instance, showing that when in particular American states that introduced no fault divorce before others did, introducing no fault divorce um, reduced the stability of all marriages because you have things like people being less likely to support a spouse through further study, um, less likely to have children because these are all things that you do if you're really, really committed to the relationship. And if you know you're, and if you're living in a culture where actually the idea of definitely getting married for life has become much less certain, then you're going to be, you know, that's going, that's likely to affect your relationship. And I think that this is, yeah, this is a, I think in a way that the the liberal feminist framework is actually in a way better described as libertarian. In the sense of what they're really interested in is just the right of the individual to, to her own self-determination. And you can easily come up with cases of, you know, you mentioned OnlyFans, you could come up with cases of of a woman who actually has is like the perfect OnlyFans creator and and makes loads of money and has a great time and is temperamentally really well suited to doing it, like genuinely doesn't really suffer from any downsides from it. You know, you can you can imagine that woman existing. That is not the typical OnlyFans creator by any means. And I think that when we're when when you think about some people describe the kind of feminism that I'm proposing here as communitarian feminism <laughs> um, as opposed to individualist, in the sense that what I'm what I'm concerned with is not just the individual level people out of self-determination although i think there is there is merit in that i'm interested in the way that that culture and collective you know problems and solutions should Translate into feminist ideas. And I think that, and and which does necessitate trade offs and which also does necessitate people, you know, restraining themselves. Like, if, say, you have a monogamous marriage system, that necessarily involves people being constrained because they can't take on multiple wives. And the people actually in, in that system who are most likely to be aggrieved by that are the elite men who would otherwise be polygamists if they could. But, you know, if you want to have a marriage system which actually benefits everyone that does necessitate personal constraints sometimes which can be painful but like this is this is what we're faced with with the, there is no utopia available
0: well you mentioned only fans a moment ago uh we've got a few uh a few questions around porn uh the research for your book led you on a deep dive into the porn industry and um perhaps we could start by looking at at the stats so uh, who's watching porn and and who's making money from it
1: um Mostly men, although not all men, a surprisingly high proportion of millennial men don't watch porn. It's like a quarter, I think, haven't watched porn in the last month, according to one survey I've read. Um and it's kind of on a pareto distribution, in that the there's a minority of men in particular who watch a lot of porn, like a really, really compulsive users, and then many more people like women in particular, tend not to be the compulsive users. Um, And then there are some people who don't watch it at all. Uh, The people who are making money are the people who are on the platforms, who are mostly men, and are really small in number. Like, there are some porn stars who make quite a lot of money, but typically not for very long, and typically with all sorts of kind of horrible long-term consequences, personally, which make it a pretty bad deal.
0: Well, why is it so unpopular to say you're against porn?
1: I think because um, I think specifically the reason that the left
0: are really reluctant to talk about the um,
1: downsides of porn is because even though it should be possible on the left to criticise this incredibly powerful global capitalist industry, um, uh, which takes an extremely consumerist attitude towards sex and human beings. I think it's very tangled up with opposition to the Christian right. I think, in particular, in America, the Christian right don't like porn, and I think that that has often been the the reason why the left won't touch it. It's just oppositional in that way. It's less true in the UK, actually, and also less true. Like we mentioned earlier the um, trans stuff. That's also less true in the UK. It's more. It's there's more space to be a feminist who's critical of um uh of self-id and of the porn industry which is i think because we don't really have a christian right here or not a powerful one at all so i think it's there's kind of less of a drive to uh focus all of our energies on opposing them unlike in the states Mm. i think that i think that's it though i think it's just because you don't want to be confused for a conservative
0: Yeah, that's the worst thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but with, with so much porn, porn and pornified images that are out there on the internet and social media, um, how is it that we're in a sex recession at the moment? Because, uh, I mean, are, are the youth of today just exhausted from all the porn or, or, or is there something else at play going on here?
1: Yeah, yeah. The, it, it is um, it's a weird counterintuitive thing that on the one hand you've got um amazing amount of sexual freedom Um, And you've got, you know, more um, social acceptance for porn and casual sex and all this stuff than really at any time. I mean, particularly in time for women in history, but you've also got people actually having a lot less sex. And I think that that's not actually, even though it seems paradoxical, I think it actually makes sense. Because porn, compulsive porn use in particular, is really damaging to people's sex lives. Because it, it makes it impossible to, like, you know, really compulsive porn use actually makes, like, erectile dysfunction pretty much an inevitability in any encounter with a real person. And it also just going out and actually finding a real person to have sex with takes, particularly for men in particular, takes effort and bravery and risk taking. And is much more difficult in every possible way from just loading up Pornhub. So you can see how for men who are feeling quite despondent um, about their ability to find a partner, porn is a much more attractive alternative, but it's also an alternative that actually harms your relationship prospects long term. So you end up with this kind of vicious cycle. So I think that I call it in the book, um, so there's a, there's this phrase uh, death grip syndrome, which is used to describe basically when you, you, you use so much porn that you become impotent. I... Right about cultural death grip syndrome which is like that but you know on on the cultural scale in that we've got super super sexualized public life so much more sexual imagery on the on the streetscape or on tv or whatever than we've ever had previously and simultaneously people not actually having satisfying sexual relationships in private
0: mm. well you mentioned that the, the term risk there do you think that the Me Too movement has had something to do with the sex recession? Like, are, are men afraid of becoming the next um, Aziz Ansari?
1: I've heard I've heard some men say this. I mean, I think it's kind of unfortunate if that's the case because of the men who are actually going to be, like, paying attention to Me Too and attentive to any, literally anything that feminists have to say are the men who are least likely to actually behave badly and be sexually aggressive, <laughs> whereas the men, like rapists do not care what feminists have to say and I doubt very much have adjusted their behavior at all post me too. I have heard, I have heard men talk about that feeling of um, hesitancy and I think also a feeling that um, our courtship rituals to use a highvolution term are much less certain than they have been at other historical moments. Partly because of rapid change, we don't really have kind of established, formalised ways of doing things that most cultures do, which does mean that, you know, if you're not as socially confident, trying to, you know, engage in culture rituals, which are by their nature very opaque, is stressful and off-putting. So, and yeah, and, and, you know, Me Too adds an extra layer of complexity to that, particularly given that it's still so recent and we haven't really resolved as a as a society how to how to deal with it long term
2: just a slight pivot what is behind the advocacy of kinks and endlessly talking about in public about sex and fetishism some people don't just want freedom in the privacy of their home, as as we we understood it once. They want to talk about it all day, in detail, uh, in meetings. I'm sure some people want to talk about it at work. They want it, they, they want to do you know bring it up in when it's not when I would have thought it's not appropriate. It comes across as really aggressive, and you know uh, when I just would have thought leather and ball gags and whatever else are, are probably niche interest. Is there is there some what, is there something performative going on here? What what, what is this?
1: Yeah, it is very performative, isn't it? I mean, I kind of think the lady does protest too much. Must be going on a little bit. Like if if you're, this is just as uh, you know, the sense that I have is that if you're really confident in your sexual life and you have really satisfying relationships, you probably don't need to talk about it publicly all the time. Whereas if you have kind of, I feel like if you make your sexual adventurousness your whole public identity that probably suggests a certain lack in your private life but then i don't know that's just my that's just my impression
0: is it a weird kind of cry for help then like
1: um way. i think it's just a i think it's just a it's a it's a subcultural identity it's like being well i mean i so said the strange thing i think the strange thing with bdsm right is that it's often represented as being really countercultural and as even, you know, uh, anti-patriarchal, it's, it's, it's feminist and often the the kind of cultural portrayals that you'll see of BDSM relationships involve female doms and male subs, but actually within the real world of BDSM that's very unusual. It's overwhelmingly female subs and male doms and what I think is kind of um, perverse about BDSM is it in many ways it's like a hyper hyper exaggerated version of traditional gender roles, where you have men being you know extra aggressive and women being extra submissive in this ritualized performative way. And I do wonder if sometimes what's going on is that this is a response to the fact that we now live in much more gender neutral kind of social space, where sex, where gen, where gender, role, where traditional gender roles are resisted and actually sex differences even are denied. And I think that BDSM kind of pre- presents an arena in which you can um, take those that urge towards sexual difference and like monstrously exaggerate it. But the problem is, I mean, several problems, one of which is that BDSM has all sorts of negative like social consequences down the track. You know, even if there are people in the BDSM community who are genuinely really responsible and, you know, take consent really seriously and are not. Bringing their own mental illness and like dysfunctional relationships into play or whatever. Um, big if, but you know, those people exist. The problem with normalizing, say, for instance, strangulation or choking, which is now like the most um, visible manifestation of BDSM's influence in mainstream sex. I mean, the, the surveys I cite in the book which show that young women in particular report being choked by their partners so much more often older women like the trend is amazing and i think it seems to be coming from porn um you know even if you don't watch the stuff yourself everyone else is watching it and choking has become really mainstream in a way that you know even a decade two decades ago it was like a really niche thing within the niche of the bdsm community it wasn't considered something that you just did casually and you know some sometimes these women are asking their partners to do it sometimes they're not so even if even if all that you're interested in is consent even if other virtues are off the table there's clearly a problem when you have um lots and lots of women experiencing non-consensual violence within sex which they really find frightening and horrible and this is all downstream of the mainstreaming of 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 you know apparently performative sexual aggression but the problem is that the line between like playing at domestic violence which is basically what bsm is right and actual domestic violence is all to do with with what's in people's heads and from a criminal justice perspective which is the whole, which is the whole point of the we can't consent to this campaign that i work on how are the courts supposed to tell the difference and how can you stop any given domestic abuser who's murdered his wife or strangled his wife or whatever showing up in court and saying well, she consented to it she was into it and this is the problem that we've been seeing kind of leaking out into the courts not just in the uk it's all over the western world and elsewhere um you you know you the kind of libertarian view of this would be to say, whatever, two consenting adults in a bedroom, leave them to it. But that's not how society works, right? Like the, this stuff this stuff um, merges with everything and then you end up with this very specific and very horrifying problem where men are murdering women and getting away with it because they say that she consented to it.
2: Well, perhaps just some big sky uh, questions to to sort of round it, round it out. You, you've got a quote in the book that I thought was very striking. We should treat our sexual partners with dignity... We should not regard other people as merely body parts to be enjoyed. We should aspire to love and mutuality in all of our sexual relationships, regardless of whether they are gay or straight. We should prioritize virtue over desire. Uh, isn't virtue the kind of thing that modern feminism has been uh, trying to jettison for years now? I mean, Is it possible to, to resuscitate the idea of virtue in, in sexual relationships, for example, the idea of, of striving for a moral good in an era that celebrates choking and polyamory and pegging and, and whatnot?
1: Um, yeah, I think it's a mistake to just in it. I write also about chivalry and saying that actually, you know, if you it, it it all comes down to this recognition of sexual difference. And if you if you do recognise sexual difference, and if you accept that it isn't possible to flatten it, either phys- you know the physical or the psychological differences, then actually chivalry is a uh, is extremely unwise to try and get rid of it because if you if you accept the fact that men are the bigger, stronger sex one, but also the sex with like the greater the greater sex drive, the greater drive towards sociosexuality, etc then actually it becomes incumbent on men to to master, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, basically. You have to you have to rely on encouraging men to voluntarily constrain their darker impulses, which is what chivalry is all in service of, really. And I think it was a huge error to think that it was more important to not be patronised by having a door held open for you, which is obviously you know, occasionally a slightly annoying side effect of chivalry. But actually, the, like the central purpose of it is really important. And yeah, I think that that it, it isn't enough just to say that as long as everyone is consenting, then there's no problem. You don't need any other kind of norms. You don't need to recognise any other virtues. Because it, the playing field isn't level, and so to just free everyone actually inevitably means that you end up with the the powerful win, winning out. You know, the powerful in every sense, the people who have the fewest um, consequences to fear, who are the bigger and the stronger and the more um, virile and whatever.
2: Well, we see the evidence of this this chivalry uh, even outside the sexual sphere. On the New York subways, on Twitter, you see all this footage now of of just mad. Attacks and abuse and of, mm. of women—it's always women who are getting attacked and abused—and men just standing around. This is this is the end stage, the mm. end of days, where you just go, "What is going on here?"
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I the, you know the situation that we find ourselves in, basically as a species, is you have a a small minority. It is a small minority of men who are you know like properly dangerous, and you need the the. Um, I can't remember who wrote about this, but the the terms I've heard used um, to describe this is that you have like a certain proportion of the male population who are wolves, and then the, the what the rest of the male population should aspire to be is is sheepdogs. You know, who 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 use their physical prowess to, for good ends to control the wolves, basically. And I think that to say just to just re- you know reject mankind, full stop, and and say that all like. You know, the hashtag not all men thing is actually true. And I think virtues like chivalry encourage sheepdog behaviour, which is very much to women's benefit.
0: Mm. Well, I I got the feeling that the core project of your book differs from some other works out there in that you you want to bring men and women together. Uh, For example, we we have a famous New School feminist in Australia and her book seemed to have a different project in mind, uh, The Downfall or Destruction of Men. Is this idea of mutual prosperity something uh, you thought about a lot?
1: I think that I don't think there's any other way, you know, because the we f- feminists have experimented with separatism, um, you know, without many good results, and you know the fact is that most people, vast majority of people, are heterosexual want to have sexual relationships with the opposite sex you know the only way the species is going to continue <laughs> is by um men and women having relationships with one another and raising children together and yeah we we have to find a way of getting along and i think that to uh, yeah i think that the, the the i've had some people read my book interestingly and I, you know I'm, I'm pretty blunt about um the fact that sexual violence, for instance, is overwhelmingly committed by men and, you know, I'm, there is a really dark side to male sexuality, etc. And I come, I don't pull my punches on that point. And they say this is a really anti-men book. And I say, no, it, no, it isn't. It's just a, it, like it's a reality book. But actually what I'm what I'm what I'm striving for in the end is actually, um, hum, hum, you know, harmonious relationships between men and women, because that's that's the only way that this can end. <laughs>
2: Well, Louise, we can't ask any more of you today, except uh, we always have a final question uh, that we ask all of our guests. We'd like to know what you're reading right now.
1: Ah, um, I am reading a book. I can't remember what it's called. It was recommended by someone else that I actually did an interview with. Um, He asked me what I thought about the sexual revolution of the first century. And I said, I don't know very much about the sexual revolution of the first century. So I'm reading a book. uh, It's called From Shame to Sin by Carl Harper, and it is about... Um, Christian sexual ethics in the Roman world.
2: Mm, sounds meaty.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is quite.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I can recommend uh, Louise's book, *The Case Against the Sexual Revolution: A New Guide to the to Sex in the 21st Century*. I uh, just want to say, Louise, I think this is a it is a, a fantastic book. Uh, probably most the most exciting and challenging uh can i call it feminist book i i i, I just if i like <laughs> feminist book that i've read in years it i think it, i read it and i was like this does what a feminist book should do uh, i got uh, I, uh, you are a, a kind and generous person seemingly but i read it and i was like this person is angry and i like that and we need we need to bring back that and and this i think challenged me and 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 really got me um yeah, got, really did challenge me and, and push my buttons. So so I just wanted to say thank you and, and wish you wish you all the best.
1: Thank you so much. That's really good to hear. <laughs>